I just finished reading a book called When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. And one of the chapters had this quote by George Bernard Shaw. And this, is, this whole topic has just been kind of haunting me for the last several weeks. Here's the quote. Go ahead and put it up there if you would, Nate. This is the true joy of life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being a force of nature rather than a feverish, feverish, selfish little cloud of ailments complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. How would you like to know that somebody's going to say that at your funeral? Oh, he or she was just a feverish, selfish little cloud of ailments complaining that the world would not devote itself to making him or her happy. Would you like for somebody to say that about you? No, I don't think so. Uh, here's the deal. This is what's been haunting me. God created us for two reasons. One is to have a relationship with him, and the other is to make a difference in someone else's life. And so if you happen to have the listening guide, or if you're on our app, you can follow along. We were created to make a difference. And if we do not live out our God-assigned mission... We will live a shadow mission. This is what has haunted me. I heard this term, and I'm going to do a series on this next year, your shadow mission. I'm just going to give you a little taste of it today. The shadow mission is the enemy of God, the enemy's perversion of our true mission. It's a counterfeit mission. A shadow mission is something that is very, very important to us, but it leads us away for the reason God created us. And it's typically, here's the scary thing, it's typically just a few degrees off from your God-given mission in life. For example, um, what makes the, 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 the shadow mission so insidious is how closely it's related to your true mission. If God's purpose is for you to teach the word of God, if he gives you the spiritual gift of teaching, then the shadow mission would be to try to impress people with your teaching. And it takes the focus off of God and puts it onto you. And what makes this so bad is if you compound just a few degrees off of God's purpose, if you compound that over months and years, you get way far away from where God intended for you to be. God's purpose in giving you spiritual gifts, the purpose, there's two purposes you have spiritual gifts. One is to magnify his name. And the second is to build up the church. And if you're not using your spiritual gifts, and every believer has at least one spiritual gift, if you're not using them to magnify God and to, and to build up the body of Christ, then this poison of pride, self-righteousness will seep into your life. And yesterday I was, I was reading, so I'm in, I'm in the New Testament now. I've told you I've been spent about four years going verse by verse through the Bible. Well, I'm in the New Testament. I'm in Matthew chapter uh, 17. But yesterday I just read about the Mount of Transfiguration. And if you go to Israel with us next summer, July 15th of next summer, we're going to go to what they say is the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't know. Um, they're just guessing, but it is magnificent. Jesus goes up on a high mountain. He takes three disciples with him. He takes Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured. The, the Bible tells us that, that his clothes become like white. His face shone like the sun is how it says it. And, and Transfiguration is actually where we get our word metamorphosis from. When Jesus is transfigured and he glows as white as the sun, it is not a reflection of the sun. It comes from the inside out. He is, he is manifesting his glory in physical form before he ever goes to the cross so that Peter, James, and John can get just a taste of what the glory of heaven is going to be like. And they are blown away. Now, what they don't know is while they're on the mountain, these three disciples hanging out with Jesus, and then Moses and Elijah show up. It is incredible. Back down on the ground, back down in the valley, 
There's a man who brought his son who was demon-possessed to the other nine disciples. And the other nine disciples couldn't cast out the demon. And so when he sees Jesus coming down, he comes over, brings his son. He said, Jesus, have mercy on me. Your, your other disciples couldn't cast out this demon. Jesus is blown away at their unbelief. We talked about unbelief last week. He says, how long am I going to be up with you? Be, be with you. See, here's what happened. When Jesus goes up on the mountain, this is what I think. We don't know this from scripture, but this is what I think based on what Jesus says. Why couldn't we cast out the demon? He, Jesus casts it out. He, he, uh, he uh, rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith. And then later they ask him, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said, this type does not go out except by prayer. And then some translations say, and fasting. Now here's the point. When Jesus is up on the mountain, I think the other nine got distracted. I think they started thinking, why did, they choose, why did he choose those three? Why are we down here? Remember, they were always arguing, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And so Jesus is up on the mountain. They don't know what's going on. They get distracted. They forget to pray. They forget to meditate on the word of God. And very slowly, their shadow mission comes in. They start arguing about other things. And then when, the, when a demonic, a demon-possessed boy is brought to them, they don't have enough faith. So here's what my commentator said. This is the whole point of that. They didn't even know that the power of God had left them. You see, if you know the story of Samson, when Samson said the last time, he said, I'm just going to throw off all of these ropes and, and it'll be like the last time it says, Samson did not know that the power of God had left him. The disciples did not know the power of God had left him. And when you're following your shadow mission, one day you wake up and you think you have power and you don't even realize the power of God has left you. You see, the enemy of God is an imitator, and he wants to imitate everything. Here's what Paul told the Corinthians about the enemy of God. Satan himself, what's that word I have highlighted? Masquerades. He pretends to be what? An angel of light. Whenever the enemy can't keep someone from coming to Christ, then he begins to attack the work of God in other ways. He plants, Jesus said that the enemy plants counterfeit Christians. So Jesus tells this parable where he says there, there's, there's wheat and there's tares. And the wheat are genuine followers of Christ. The tares are counterfeit. They're imitators. They're shadows. They're masquerades. And then when Paul comes around, Paul calls these people who are fake Christians, he calls them servants of Satan. And look what he says the servants of Satan do. They masquerade. There's that word again. They do just like their, their leader does. They masquerade as servants of righteousness. Here's what I believe. I believe the problem in the church in the world today is there are fake Christians in the church. There are servants of Satan in the church masquerading as servants of righteousness. I mean, I'm just going on what the word says. And you better believe if there's fake believers in the church, they have a counterfeit gospel. Here's what Paul says about the counterfeit gospel in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. There's the counterfeit gospel, the shadow gospel, which is really not a gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, listen to this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Let him be a curse because it's a fake gospel. It's not a real gospel at all. Let him be damned. As we've already said, so I now say again, if anybody preaching, is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Let him be damned to the confines of hell. 
There's a counterfeit gospel. There's a counterfeit mission. And, and there's even a counterfeit church in, in Revelation chapter 2. It's called the synagogue of Satan. And there will one day be a counterfeit Christ. The Antichrist will rise. So here's my point. If Satan is an imitator and he masquerades and he counterfeits everything, you better believe he's going to try to counterfeit your mission from God with your shadow mission. And here's how he does it. He does two things to defeat you. Number one, he tempts you to use your spiritual gifts for your own selfish purposes. Go ahead and put that next one up. Instead of the glory of God. Number two, he uses emotional wounds from your past to keep you tied to the past so that you miss God in the present. And we come to John chapter five. Jesus goes to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. He comes across a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. So think about this. He had not moved in 38 years. His legs didn't work. There were no muscles. They had atrophied for over 38 years. There is nothing. He's lying by the pool of Bethesda. Again, you go with us next year. We will go to the pool of Bethesda. We'll read this story. We'll talk about what it must have been like for him to meet Jesus. Jesus knows that he's been suffering for 38 years, and he asks him a question. It seems like a dumb question to us. He says, do you want to get well? They have this little conversation because he doesn't say, yes, Lord, I'd like to be well. He has this little conversation with Jesus. Uh, someone please take a wild guess. If you know anything about Jesus and you know anything about the confrontation he had with the religious leaders, what day of the week do you think Jesus is having this, con this conversation with this invalid man? The Sabbath day. Thank you. You're paying attention. The Sabbath day. It's, it, it's as if he goes looking for trouble on the Sabbath day. And I used to believe Jesus was just looking for trouble. That's not what he was looking for. He was looking for his father, and I'm going to show you that in just a minute. He's always looking for where his father was at work. So here's what happens. Jesus said to him, the invalid man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Because if some dude walks up to you and says, get up and walk, and your, your legs all of a sudden have muscles on them, and you're like, hey, I'd like to try these suckers out. I know Thatcher would be hopping up and down. He'd be racing somebody because that's what he always does. Comes walking in here limping. What would you do, race somebody again? Yes, I race somebody. He'd hop up and down and he picks up his mat and he goes to walk away because that's what you do if Jesus shows up. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And because it was the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. Yep, probably knew that. The law. Now, here's my question. Whose law? Man's law or God's law? The law forbids you to carry your mat. Was that man's law or God's law? Is man's law. Okay. We know that, that Moses wrote the five, first five books of the Old Testament. Matthew, Mark, uh, <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Moses did not write those. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's called the law. Now, supposedly, Moses passed on some traditions to the elders. And this went on for generations until somebody decided to write it down. We already had the first five books of the Old Testament called the law. Someone decided to write it down, and it's called the Mishnah. It is the tradition of the elders. And over the course of time, the Mishnah actually became more important to people. It became a shadow mission, a shadow word of God. It is more important today in many Jewish places than the actual law of God written by Moses. This should not be, but that's what they're talking about because the enemy gets you looking at tradition. Let's follow this tradition and let's not worry about a man who's an invalid for 38 years who just got healed. We don't want him walking around on the Sabbath day carrying his mat. He's working. And they said, who did, who told you to do this? 
Guy didn't know. He didn't know Jesus' name. Later, Jesus comes back to him. Jesus tells him who he is. And so the guy runs to the, the fake Jewish leaders, the counterfeit leaders, and, and he says, it was Jesus that healed me. And then look what happens in, in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, here's what I want you to see. My father is always at work to this very day. He came on the Sabbath day looking for his father, not looking for trouble. And his father told him to go to this invalid man and to heal him. He was looking all the time for his father. He said, to this very day, my father's at work and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Why? Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, their Sabbath, not God's Sabbath, the Mishnah, the traditions, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Don't, a lot of times people will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Everybody knew Jesus was claiming to be God and the religious leaders, it's what got him killed because they, he says, he's my father that made him equal with God. Now, in our world today, there's a whole lot of counterfeit religions. Lots of people claim there's many roads to God and that makes as much sense as saying all roads lead to Tyler or all roads lead to Dallas, all roads lead to Houston. How many of you have ever been on the wrong road thinking you were on the right road, really believing you were on the right road? Anybody done that? No matter how much you believe it, does it make it the right road? And there's a moment when you go, oh no, I'm lost, right? Right before that moment, you think you're good. Right after that moment, you're like, I'm lost, right? There's a lot of people that are lost in our world today. You're sincerely believing you're on the right road doesn't make it the right road. Jesus built the only road, and here's what he said about that road. This is the message translation. Jesus said, I am the road. Now, you've heard another translation as I am the way, but I wanted you to hear the road. I am the road, also the truth, and also the life. No one gets to the Father apart from me. So the founder of our religion says this. Put that sign up there. There's one way. And when you say that to people, they say, how narrow-minded. How can you say that your religion is superior to my religion? Well, because my founder of my religion is superior to your religion. Jesus is the one who gave one option, one option only. And Jesus is the one that said, this is where we lose most people right here. When he says, I am the only way, I'm the only road, we lose most people. Because according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, there's this huge, broad road, and there are multitudes of people on the road to destruction. And Jesus says, there's this very little narrow way, and very few are on the way to life. And Jesus said, I'm the one way, not many people are on that way. And people say, I can't believe you're so close-minded. How dare you judge me? How dare you think your religion is better than my religion? Well, just because you don't like the message, don't get mad at the messenger, okay? I'm telling you what Jesus said, so get mad at Jesus. I'm, I'm merely saying, he said there's one way, it's Highway 146, John 14, 6. He's the only one who predicted his death, burial, and resurrection while he was alive, and then he pulled it off, so I'm going to listen to him. I'm not going to listen to any other founder of any other religion. What about the Muslim who's sincere? He's sincerely wrong. What about the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormon that's sincere? Those religions cannot exist alongside of Christianity. Somebody's lying. Somebody's telling the truth. And I'm betting my eternity on the one who came back from the dead, never to die again. Because here's what Scripture says in Hebrews 9, 27. People die once, and after that they are judged. How many times do people die? Once. So if there's only one way to heaven, and there's all these counterfeits, all these shadow missions out there, where do all the shadow missions lead if there's only one road that leads to hell? I mean, heaven. There's one road that leads to heaven. All these other roads lead to hell. There's, there's only one option. 
one to heaven, all the others go to destruction. That means any religion that teaches reincarnation, false religion. It's a shadow. If the Bible's the real deal, it says you die one time, you're going to stand before God, and you're going to be judged. And the outcome of that judgment determines whether you go to heaven or to hell. And here's where it is. If you spend all of your life on earth avoiding God, I don't want you, God. You Stay away from me, God. Stay at... I'm going to go my direction. I don't want anything to do with you, God. When you die and when you stand before God, when you die once and you're judged, God's going to honor your, judge, your, your decision from when you were alive and you chose hell. God didn't create hell for people. People choose to go to hell. Who would choose to go to hell? Anyone who rejects Jesus. Anyone who rejects the one legitimate way. This is a very big deal. Because when, his, when he judges you, his, his judgment is final, it's right, it's fair, it's permanent, and it's based on your choice. People who follow the counterfeits are going to be severely disappointed when they stand before God. So let me talk about the main counterfeits that are out there today. Number one is the moral life. <clears throat> being moral is the highest goal. Or maybe in America, in this climate, maybe we say being politically correct is the highest goal. And honestly, I don't even know what politically correct is anymore. There's so many choices. But the thing is, I'm not that bad. I live a pretty good life. I'm no axe murderer. I don't harm innocent children. I don't even deer hunt. I don't even kill Bambi's mother on opening day of deer season. I'm not that bad compared to other people. But here's the problem. You'll never be compared to other people when you stand before God. You'll be compared to Jesus Christ who was perfect. So don't say, well, I'm no axe murderer. Yay for you. Not axe murderers will still bust open the gates of hell if they're not a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not a deer hunter. Well, good for you. In baseball, now, back when the Rangers were good, this was a long time ago. I, I've, I've gone back and looked. This was a long time ago the Rangers were good. You remember that, Jared? You remember when they were good? We were in Haiti when they were good, begging them to give us a, an update because we didn't have any... Internet, but they used to be good, and they used to have this guy playing for them named Josh Hamilton. One year, Josh Hamilton hit 359 for the season, and that was that's spectacular. So in baseball, you're considered really, really good if you get 3.5 hits every 10 times you come to bat. So you fail six and a half times, but three and a half hits over 10 times, that's considered good. Now, think about this. If... Um, what if I told you, now, if he did that for, for 10, 15 years, hit 300, you're going to be in the Hall of Fame, right? If you get 3,000 hits in, in Major League over your career, you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. But what if I told you, in order to make the Hall of Fame, you had to play every game for 10 years? That'd be 1,620 games in a normal year. This is not a normal year, so we're not going to count 2020. But what if I told you not only did you have to play in every game in, for 10 years to make the, the Hall of Fame, you also had to get a hit every time you came to bat. Now, the average major leaguer over 162 games comes to bat 550-something times. So you have to get 550 hits in one season, and then you have to do that for 10 years, and you have 5,500 hits. You've got as many hits as I have golf balls, right? That's how many you've got to have in your career. Now, the record in one season for hits, Ichiro Suzuki, 262 hits. But you have to get 550 hits over at least 10 years. The record for number of hits in a career is 4,000, I wrote it down, 
256 by Pete Rose, and he played well over 20 years. But, but if you're going to get into this hall of fame, you have to be perfect. Get a hit every time up. Never make an error. Play every game, and then you'll make it into the hall of fame. So what I'm telling you is the best major league players ever would not make it into that hall of fame. And neither will moral people make it into heaven because you can't be good enough. You cannot be good enough. The best to ever walk the earth will be left out without Jesus. Here's what Romans 3.23 says. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. To get into heaven, there's actually two ways. Some of you are going to be upset with this. There's actually two ways to get into heaven. One is you live a perfect life. The Bible says you can't do that. So, so that one's just off the table. The second is you've got to have somebody else pay for your ticket. Jesus has to pay for you to get into heaven. So the moral life is counterfeit. Number two is the knowledgeable life. Here's another counterfeit. If you know and believe the right things, you'll get to heaven. So maybe if you know enough about the Bible or you know enough about the environment, whatever group that you're following around. When, when I was in Arlington, uh, Caleb was born when we were in Arlington. So I was a youth minister uh, at Lamar Baptist Church. And we were just down, I mean, literally five minutes from Rangers Ballpark. And I went to Rangers bar, Ballpark many times. We were there when they were building the ballpark in Arlington. Well, somebody decided that, that it would be a great idea if for our staff picture one year, we went to the ballpark in Arlington and went to home plate and got our picture made there. We're like, yeah, that's a great idea. Now, here's the problem. If you don't know somebody in the Rangers organization when a brand new billion dollar stadium is being built, you're not getting in. But the chief financial officer named Charlie Wagner was a member of our church. He was a deacon in our church. One year, he was even the chairman of deacons in our church. His daughter was in our Sunday school class. So Janie and I were in a young married class. I remember one time we went to Rangers uh, ballpark, Rangers stadium, and, and the dot race, you know, before they had people running around the dots. So Charlie's daughter comes out. She worked for the organization. She hands out all the same color dot. And we're like, that's weird. And she goes, well, this is who's going to win. And sure enough, they do the thing and they win. I'm like, wow, you know, people in high places. We just won the dot race before it was like 10% off of a bottle of water. This was actually a good prize back then. I thought, wow, she knows people. So somebody calls Charlie and they said, Charlie, can we have our staff picture made at home plate? So we drive out, we go into the, 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 ball par the, the player's parking lot, which is very, very close. It's the closest parking lot to the stadium, but there's a tunnel underneath the stadium. I did not know this till we parked and got to go through the tunnel. And somebody came out and got us in the little carts and we're riding through and they show us around underneath this brand new ballpark. And I'm going, this is awesome. And then they take us to this little door and we walk out onto the field. And, and this is an old picture is actually scanned in, but that's actually our staff picture that was in the front of our church directory. Now, if we had just known Charlie Wagner's name, would we have gotten in? What if we knew his birth date or his favorite dessert? Would that have gotten us in? No, somebody had to know Charlie Wagner in order for us to get in. Just knowing his name was not enough. You have to know him personally. And see, here's the problem. 90% of Americans know about God. 90% of Americans believe there is a God, but they don't know him. Most people in the United States believe about marriage. Does that make them married? No, to be married, you got to make a choice. I, I did uh, Jacob's wedding last night, Jacob Beckham and, and Kaylee Parker. I, I did their wedding and I, we held up the rings and I said, hey, Jacob, do you give this ring as a promise of your love? And he said, yes, I do. And he puts it on her finger. I said, repeat after me with this ring. I promise you my love and my life. They made a choice and they got married last night. 
29 years ago on May 25th, I stood across from Janie Gardner and I said, I choose you. And she said, I choose you. And we got married. This ring does not make me married. This ring is a symbol of that marriage. You have to choose to be a Christian. I had a guy one time said, well, I've just always been a Christian. I said, no, you haven't. It doesn't work that way. You've got to make a choice. He said, well, I've never made a choice. I said, then you're not a believer in Christ. Look what James says, the half-brother of Jesus. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this, in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that, but what good does it do them? Demons believe in God, but they're not going to be in heaven. There's a difference in believing and following. Counterfeit number one is, is the moral life. Counterfeit number two is knowing. Counterfeit number three is the religious life. This is a step above religiously. Not only do you act morally, but you act religiously in order to earn God's approval. He has to pay attention to you. So I have a question. How many of you are, are members of the YMCA or some type of fitness? Whatever. Does just being a member... Make you in shape? I haven't been to the Y in a year now. You can tell. Michael says, I know. <laughs> Janie went up there the other day and people were going, where's Doug? Because I used to be a fixture at the Y. I'm not anymore. Now, let me ask you, if I decide to go back to the Y and I go into the weight room and I hang out with those tough looking guys, can just being near them make me look like them? You know, um, I was thinking about this. This is how my mind works. You know, uh, Spock in, in the Star Trek movies, Spock did the mind meld where he would stick his hand up there and so somehow he could, he could mind meld with you. Now, you'll probably get your head knocked off, but if you, could, if you could put your hand on the shoulder of one of those really tough guys, could you muscle meld with them, right? And you look like one of them? No. Going to church doesn't get you to heaven either. We practice baptism in our horse trough over here. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a symbol that you've already been saved. We're going to take the Lord's Supper next week. The Lord's Supper doesn't save you. It's a symbol that you've already been saved. Wearing this ring doesn't make me married. It's a symbol of the commitment. I made a commitment to Janie before I ever gave her a ring, before she ever gave me a ring. Same with baptism and the Lord's Supper. You commit to Christ before you're baptized. You commit to Christ before you take the Lord's Supper. Your commitment is what makes the symbols meaningful. If you join New Life Community Church, you've got to go through 101, class 101. Class 101 does not save you. We tell you what we believe, and I've actually had people come to Christ through class 101. Baptism matters. Celebrate recovery matters. Going to Bible study matters. Ser uh, serving, that all matters, but none of those things save you. They're all symbols of a relationship you have with Christ. See, if, if I could show you this week, I think you'd be very interested in this. If I could show you how you could save $1,000 a week for the next 50 years, do you think you'd have enough for retirement? $1,000 a week for the next 50 years, that would be $2.6 million. How many of you could handle that for your retirement? What if, though, the $1,000 bills that you were saving were monopoly money and not real money? Would that help you in, in retirement? No. You'd be severely disappointed. Everybody who buys one of those counterfeit lies is going to be severely disappointed when they stand before God because none of those will get you into heaven. There's only one real deal. 
And here it is. It's called the substitute life. God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He batted a thousand, never made an error, and then he offered his life as a substitute for yours. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your errors. He rose from the dead, and he offers his life in exchange for yours. But you have to choose. Look what Romans 3, 23 through 25 says. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be, and he did it by the means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. God decided on this course of action in full view of the public to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, finally taking care of the sins he had so patiently endured. Here's, Here's what I want you to understand. God is not schizophrenic. He didn't come to the United States and say, hey, there's one way. It's Highway 146. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. And then he didn't go to the other side of the world and say, hey, there's a different way. You can make up your own way. God says there's one way, and it it works for the whole world. Someone's telling the truth, and someone's lying. Actually, a whole bunch of people in this world are lying about the way you get to heaven. And and the quickest way to tell is go to the founder of of the belief system. I've studied them all, all the major world religions. The only one that has a founder who everybody says was a good man. By the way, if he's not God's son, he wasn't a good man because he said he was God's son. Oh, well, he's a good teacher. Well, if, if he knew he was lying to us, that doesn't make him a good teacher. So he's either, he's either the Lord like he said he was. He's lying or he's crazy. He just thought he was God's son, but he backed it all up. So all these other founders are liars, cheaters, adulterers, swindlers. Why would you follow them? There's only one where he said, I'm going to die for the sins of mankind, and I'm going to raise myself up on the third day, never to die again. And hundreds of people saw him alive over the next 40 days after his resurrection. One time, 500 people at the same time saw him alive. My question is, why would you put your faith in anyone else? There is an enemy who wants you to get off course and follow a shadow mission. But your heavenly father has said, here's what I created you for. And when you figure out what he's created you for and you do it, you leave filled with the spirit of God, reflecting the glory of God, and people's lives will be changed. And I'm telling you, it's addicting to see people come who, who were on drugs and God has, cl- has cleansed them from that. Or people who've had all kinds of bad things happen to them, they get healed. In Celebrate Recovery, we talk about everyone has hurts, habits, and hang-ups. We love seeing people healed from hurts, habits, and hang-ups and glorifying God. And it's why the church was established, and it's why we're still here. I think God wants some of you all to be involved in that mission. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you that we don't have to wonder about what the truth is. You told us truth is a person named Jesus Christ. 
the way, the road is a person named Jesus Christ. Eternal life is a person named Jesus Christ. Help us to follow him and not any counterfeits. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.